Welcome to the University of California, San Francisco Sports Medicine Podcast, featuring Dr. Nira Fundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne, discussing hot topics in sports medicine and society. We hope you enjoy our podcast and look forward to hearing from you. Um, welcome, everyone, to our UCSF Sports Medicine Podcast, six to eight weeks with myself, Dr. Nira Fundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne. Today, we have a sports medicine grab bag um, with questions brought to us by the hosts of 95.7 The Game, uh, who have partnered with us on our Clear to Play segment, which appears every Wednesday at 11.30 a.m. on 95.7 The Game. And we asked some of the radio hosts to uh, give us some questions ahead about sports medicine and orthopedics in general. So we'll start out first with uh, Dan Dibley, um, who asked some questions, number one. Um, what's the risk of arthritis in general with an ACL uh, reconstruction? And then number two, um, what about unicompartmental knee arth- arthroplasties? What's the indications and kind of outcomes of that? So maybe we'll start with ACL first. Uh, Brian, if you want to talk about risk of arthritis with uh, ACL reconstruction. Sure. I feel, I feel like Dibley's questions are leading down a very specific question. Um, so I think one way to think about ACL injuries is that your knee is trying to dislocate. And in many, in many situations, even though we talk about this being a injury that we can recover from and we can give you a new ACL, it's still a catastrophic event for your knee. And I think the reason why this is important is because we know that especially untreated people with an ACL injury are at higher risk for meniscus and cartilage injury. And they're at higher risk for developing um, arthritis at a younger age. Even when you have an ACL reconstruction that's successful, everything's done perfectly, that risk is still going to be higher But the problem is, is we don't know the future, meaning we don't know when your knee was destined based on genetics, future events, et cetera, to get a knee replacement. So let's say you were going to get a knee replacement, no matter what, with no injuries at age 85, probably an ACL tear and reconstruction, even with a perfect reconstruction, lowers that to 70 to 75. So I think the straight answer is, and once you have an ACL injury, the die is cast for your knee to behave a little bit differently, to be at more risk for having a um, a symptomatic knee arthritis, but it's still going to be years and years and years and decades into the future. But it also points to what we need research on. We need something that we can put in the knee at the time of ACL injury to stabilize cartilage or help cartilage be protected from the breakdown that we see seems to happen for in the first couple of years after ACL injury and reconstruction. Yeah. And Drew, what about, um, you know, speaking about those knees that do go on to arthritis, when do you do a unicompartmental arthroplasty as opposed to kind of your general total knee arthroplasty? Yeah. With the knee, we think of three compartments. There's medial, lateral, and then the patellofemoral where the kneecap tracks. Um, and a total knee replacement is replacing all three parts. So, um, you have wear in all of them and the whole thing, a total knee, uh, full replacement. And that's the most common one that's done. And then a unicompartmental arthroplasty is just replacing one of the three. And um, so that can be medial, can be lateral, can be the patellofemoral, um, any one of those three individual spots. Uh, most commonly it's medial. That's just the most common spot that wears out. Um, and it is a little more unusual just because you have to have arthritis just localized to that one spot. Um, you know, what you don't want to do is have a partial knee replacement, but then the rest of your knee's hurting. So you get one spot good, and then you still hurt because you didn't replace the other spots while you were there. Um, and so 
you know, you have to be pretty selective that, you know, it is only in that affected area. And then, you know, there's a few other things like your ligaments have to be intact. Um, so you're keeping your ACL, your PCL, um, you're keeping these other structures in the knee, which isn't the case in a total knee replacement where the implant kind of substitutes for those functions. Uh, but then in those right patients, it can be really nice because, you know, you're only changing part of it. You're not replacing the other parts that aren't needed. Um, and the knee can almost function a little more normally. Um, it's a little less invasive, but, um, you know, I think for the right patient can be a really nice replacement, but uh, you got to be pretty careful that it's, um, you know, the other areas are looking good too. Um, Drew, I want to ask you a question about some of the research that you do because you do a lot of um, advanced imaging. Um, actually, two questions. First of all, what do you see in cartilage after patients get an ACL reconstruction? Does the cartilage improve, get worse? Are there factors that we should consider? Yeah, so we still see cartilage breakdown, which is um, you know that onset of arthritis. And uh, we can pick it up, you know, as early as one year, even six months, like really pretty soon after the ACL injury, we can see, you know, some evidence of degenerative changes starting. Um, and, you know, we can do that with these sophisticated MRI scans. And um, I think, you know, that's getting back to your point of we need something at the time of injury or the time of surgical treatment that, you know, we can add to the knee or change the rehab regimen or give a medication um, to, you know, try and limit that progression. And it's something that we're trying to study. We have got a trial going on right now and um, we'll have more as well, but um, hopefully we can find some kind of solution to stop that progression. Great. Now, kind of in line with that question about arthroplasty and, and kind of joint pain, uh, Matt Steinmetz had a question about when do you know you need a hip replacement and, and what kind of pain will you have? Is it the front, the back, or the side? So maybe, Brian, how do you how do you kind of, number one, differentiate what hip kind of pain is coming from the joint itself versus outside of the joint? And what are the indications for needing a hip replacement? Yeah, so classically, I think um, hip pain from something inside the joint is in your groin. So we tend to think of the hip as anywhere from kind of lower abdomen into upper thigh, but it's pretty specific. People with hip arthritis have pain in their groin, tends to be increased with activity, increased with a sitting position because you're gonna load your hip a little bit more in that position. Pain on the side of the hip, especially tenderness along the bone on the outside of your hip, tends to be a bursitis or inflammation along that bone. And pain in the back, unfortunately, is usually coming from your lower back. Um, when you need a hip replacement, that's tough. Same with knee replacement, same with shoulder replacement. Everybody's a little bit different. Um, the questions I like to ask in clinic is, how much is this affecting your daily life? Is it keeping you from doing the sports you want to do, the activities you want to do? Are you not going to work because that body part hurts too much? Is it keeping you from sleeping? Have you tried other things to try to get yourself better, whether it's simple, like five pounds weight loss, taking an anti-inflammatory, improving your diet, um, trying physical therapy for hip or knee arthritis. Um, when you've done these other things, I think it's pretty reasonable to get a hip replacement, mainly because the outcomes from hip replacements are so good. You look at people that are now 15, 20 years down the line from a hip replacement done in the early 2000s, they're still doing really well, and they're essentially pain-free. So it can increase your activities. It can make you feel a lot better. So the indications to hold off for ever and ever and ever when you have x-ray confirmation of hip arthritis are um, pretty low right now. 
Maybe a, maybe a question for Drew before we go into our next topic. Yeah, in general, do do patients do better with hip replacements or knee replacements? I mean, I obviously do PED, so I don't see much of these patients anymore, but it always seemed to be in training that the hip replacement patients were up and moving around and seemed to do really well really quickly. Yeah, totally the hip replacements. And both are, you know, they're good operations, but um, it, you know, the hip replacements, it almost just works like a normal hip and um, just kind of resets back to where things should be. The knee replacement, you know, it's always like, or often is a little different still, but, you know, way better with regards to pain. But um, yeah, I think, you know, the hip replacement patients are usually some of the happiest people. And I know if I had to get a joint replaced, I would definitely choose my hip as the one to put in a new one. All right. What are you doing tomorrow? Uh, I've got plans tomorrow. Yeah. Give me a few years. <laughs> now, one quick question followed about that, Brian. You know, some people hear about hip arthroscopy and labral repairs. Where's that line or what criteria is kind of like, do you do a hip arthroscopy for a labral tear versus do you go in and say, you know what, actually a hip replacement would be better? Yeah, I think that's where it becomes really important to get x-rays rather than an MRI. Um, we know that, as, especially as we get older, we're going to see changes in our soft tissues around joints. So in both the shoulder and hip, you're going to have labral tears. Um, if you're young and you have a labral tear in the hip, that may be something that we would consider doing a, it's probably something we would consider doing a hip arthroscopy for. As we get older and you have x-ray changes showing that the joint is narrowing, that you have physically less cartilage, if we can essentially see that easily on x-ray, whether uh, a hip arthroscopy to clean up the joint is likely not going to be successful any greater than two years. Now, you may ask, well, if it gives you incredibly pain-free existence for two years, is that worth it? And ultimately, that's why we have to have these discussions with patients. For some patients, it may well be worth it to get them an extra couple of years to, for instance, get a job with a pension that allows them to um, have a, like the rest of their life, totally pain-free when they get a hip replacement, um, allow them to continue their activities. But realistically, most people, once we see arthritis on x-ray, are going to end up not doing well with a hip arthroscopy. Right. All right. Next question for you, Drew, brought to you by uh, Bonte Hill. If you are getting back into exercise and you strain your hamstring almost immediately when you're starting exercise, number one, how do you treat a hamstring strain? And when should you get back to activity for things like a Peloton or, or running on the treadmill? Yeah. So um, really common injury. Um, so I don't know if Bonte is dealing with it right now or just, you know, the experience of it, but um, a lot of people that does happen as you're trying to ramp back up and uh, the best thing initially is, you know, that rest, ice, compression, um, anti-inflammatories, um, and, you know, trying to just treat it symptomatically. And then, um, you know, as you get it to calm down, then, you know, you're looking towards stretching to maintain some flexibility in the muscle and then building up strength. Um, and then the biggest, you know, with a routine hamstring strain, I think pain can usually be a good guide for uh, you know, how much you can do. There are some things we, you know, some injuries that we see where pain really can't guide you, but I think the hamstrings one that it can. Um, and then you just really want to ramp up really gradually. Um, so uh, it's, you know, overuse or, you know, overexertion past what you're ready for. So you want to just, um, you know, work slowly, you know, little by little, keep adding more intensity uh, and then, you know, should be able to get through it. And, um, and then, you know, there are times where it's more concerning, like you've completely torn the hamstring tendon. So um, usually won't happen just from the Peloton, but 
Um, you know, if you're in that situation where you have a more acute hamstring injury where there's a pop, there's a lot of bruising, uh, it's probably worth getting checked out early to see, you know, do those tendons need to be repaired or is this going to be something that heals on its own? Yeah, I think for um, hamstrings um, on the Bonte, um, how nervous should Bonte be? Anytime over the age of 35, 40 for an athlete, I think a hamstring is a big deal. I mean, we've got that paper coming out that shows that recurrent hamstring strains especially are worse than primaries for NBA athletes. Um, I think the same is true for people exercising every day. I think the most important thing for my patients is they tell them, this is going to be three months until you're back to normal. And you may be able to get on the Peloton at six weeks, maybe even a little bit earlier, but it's going to be three months until you feel really good. And people don't remember anymore, but Matt Kemp, who used to play for the Dodgers, used to do this every year. He'd be out in May with a hamstring strain and they'd be, oh, he's coming back really quick. He's coming back mid-June. He'd strain his hamstring again, and then he'd be out for the year. So that importance of forced rest and allowing your hamstring and your muscle to really recover, I think is the most important thing. Yeah. And then along lines with that question, Brian, what, um, what kind of things can you do before you exercise to help prevent this from happening? Are there, should we static stretch dynamic warm up? What, what kind of things should we do? Yeah, I think the best evidence suggests a uh, dynamic warm up, static stretching before warming up hasn't really been shown to do much, but then stretching afterwards and strengthening our hamstrings. Uh, most of the studies, when they look at hamstring strains, the biggest predictor is the amount of times you're, per week you're playing sports, which is kind of just the more you're exposed to risk, the more likely you are to get injured. Um, and then your quad to hamstring strength. So if you're going to strengthen your quads, you need to also focus on your hamstrings, which I think more and more at gyms, um, people do. There's more people doing squats, lunges, um, deadlifts, all things for your posterior chain. Awesome. Great. So our next question uh, comes from Mark Willard um, about throwing out your back and he uses an example of throwing out your back when you're stepping out of the car. Um, what exactly is throwing out your back and what are ways we can, we can promote back health? Drew? Like what, what things can you do to make sure your back doesn't get thrown out? Yeah, most commonly it's um, again, like a muscle strain. Um, there's a number of different muscles that support and stabilize the back. Um, and then it's, you know, just straining that you're twisting and uh, putting an unusual load and, and um, having that you can have things like a herniated disc or, you know, you can have more chronic issues like, you know, some arthritis through the back uh, that you know, pinches on nerves, but uh, mostly it's that uh, muscular issue. Um, and, you know, the, the best thing to prevent it is good core strength, um, you know, focusing on um, yeah, core, low back strength, um, stretching, um, and, you know, some of it becomes inevitable at times, but um, hopefully with, you know, good foundational strength can limit the um, incidence of it. Yeah. When do you know there's like, uh, you're worried about like a herniated disc? Is there some sort of sign or symptom that would be concerning that says, hey, you know, this is this is more than just kind of a muscular issue? Yeah, and usually. Oh, yeah, I'll answer that when your calf hurts for no reason. And all of a sudden, <laughs> you're missing 30 games in the in the dead of winter. <laughs> Yeah, so I think um, I'm going to steal Drew, Drew's answer, but basically any pain that radiates past the knee, having a little bit of pain that goes into your hamstring or the classic sciatica is not that big of a deal. It's pretty common. It happens to about 90% of people at one point or another. But when you start having pain that radiates down the back of your leg, past your calf, numbness or tingling or any weakness in your lower extremity, then I think that's an indication to get checked out sooner rather than later. And the best evidence on what to do 
when you have a, when you've thrown out your back is no more than 48 hours of bed rest and then get up and move around. Um, the worst outcomes are people that lie in bed for more than a week. Um, those patients tend to have a very um, long and drawn out recovery versus 48 hours of le or less of rest and then get up and move around. That'll, that'll give the muscles the best chance of recovery. And then our, our final question here comes from Daryl Guru Johnson. Um, what's the best warm up for individuals who are over age 50? Can you warm up too much or is there an ideal warm up time uh, before engaging in kind of uh, aerobic activity? Well, we're both going to be silent on that one. Um, since I'm the closest to that milestone, I don't think it matters. I think that's one of those things where everybody's has their individual sweet spot and how much they need to warm up. Some people five to 10 minutes, some people need a half an hour before they feel good. So I think it's one of those things where you can look at your own conditioning and start feeling when everything feels good. On average, about five to 10 minutes is usually sufficient for a 30 to 50 minute workout. How about you, Drew? What do you, what do you usually recommend for your older athletes? Yeah, I'd agree. And I think a lot of it is personal and kind of knowing what you need to do. And um, yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is always like a, anytime you're starting a new activity, that gradual increase and both knowing your limits and um, knowing how prepared you need to be to, you know, to do it safely. Awesome. Great. Well, thanks everyone for uh, listening to our podcast, six to eight weeks. We uh, took some questions from our, uh, our friends at 95.7 The Game, and uh, we look forward to hearing you on our next podcast. Thanks everybody. Thank you for listening to the University of California, San Francisco Sports Medicine Podcast featuring Dr. Nira Bundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne. We look forward to hearing your feedback and hope you look forward to our next episode. Thank you.